Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this is a special mini-series of ECFR podcasts on the topic of European sovereignty. Over the last few weeks we have had lots of debates about what kind of world we're living in. It's clear that Donald Trump is the first US president to think that the US-led world order is undermining rather than enhancing US interests. And he seems to have embarked on a process of creative disruption or destruction uh, of blowing up various different institutions around which we have managed our thoughts. This ranges from the World Trade Organization to NATO to the Paris Climate Agreement and he seems also to have a particular problem with his allies who he sees as free riding off the US as well as standing in the way of this demolition derby which he has embarked upon. We discussed in earlier podcasts exactly what Donald Trump uh, is doing, but the purpose of this series is to think through what Europeans need to do to exist in this world order or disorder. We're going to look at the question of security and defence policy. One of the long-standing fears in European countries is that Europeans are not safe and that they can't defend themselves in this world. The transatlantic relationship has been the core pillar of European security. And we're very lucky to have two great experts to help us make sense of what Europeans can do in practical terms. First up is, is Thomas Valasek. He is the director of Carnegie Europe. He's also a former Slovak ambassador to NATO um, and has worked in a whole series of of different think tanks on European and transatlantic security over a couple of decades now. And also coming back to the podcast is Nick Whitney, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR. He was the first director, the founding director of the European Defence Agency, but has also worked at a very senior level in the British Ministry of Defence and has been on this podcast very regularly to talk about both what is happening on European defence and also uh, what is not happening. Not all the podcasts have been about PESCO, the impotent gorilla, but some of them have been, which, uh, which Nick has taken part in. So why don't we start with this basic question of, uh, the, of strategic autonomy. How far, Thomas, is Europe from strategic autonomy. If we wanted a kind of minimalist idea of a Europe that was able to defend itself, um, how different would it look from the European Union that we have today? That depends on what the, the country in question worries about, because the different European countries worry about different things, to state the obvious. Um, and our dependence on NATO and the US because of that is, is kind of both deep and narrow. What I mean by that is that of the things that that might require a military solution um, that Europeans um, obsess about, um, migration, terrorism, these are things that could probably be handled on our own, even within the existing means and with the uh, existing budgets. But it's the it's the last thing on the upper end of the scale. Uh, the um, the possibility of of an actual conventional and and God forbid nuclear war with Russia. 
which is where our dependence on the United States in many ways is, is very deep. And the trouble is, because it only affects one part of a spectrum, again, it's only on the last bit on the war with Russia where the dependence is so pronounced. The different countries' incentives uh, to take the war, take the scenario seriously, are, you know, very, very um, uh, varied. So my concern politically is that what you're going to end up in, should the United States genuinely check out of the business of defending Europe, is uh, a group of about 10 countries, particularly in Central and Northern Europe, will be extremely worried in in sort of existential terms about their own survival. Uh, And the other, the rest of the um, of the rest of the 28 or 27, whatever the number might be, you know, to the Portuguese, the the worry, the worry about possible war with Russia is the furthest thing on their mind. So what incentive will they have uh, to take serious interest and start investing a lot more in defending central and northern bits of Europe? against the one thing that uh, that we cannot handle without the Americans. So my worry is that if the unthinkable does happen uh, and you have uh, you have a Europe without the backstop of U.S. conventional and nuclear power, that the response will be very uneven, uh, that you will find some countries taking interest, uh, but not nearly the sort of the the uniform or at least the overwhelming majority of the uh, European countries doing so, uh, and that there may not be enough in terms of deterring Russia or reassuring the uh, allies most concerned, those in Central and Northern Europe. So those ten countries, just to so that we're we're um, uh, as as precise as possible, can you list them? Well, I mean, you can literally take. The, uh, take your finger, put it on the map, uh, and, and start going along the Russian border. So you'll start with Norway, going down through Sweden, Finland, uh, the Baltic countries, Poland, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, um, and you could, on, on a good day, throw in Czech Republic and Slovakia. And Hungary, though, by virtue of not having a direct border with Russia, they worry a bit less about um, uh, the scenario than the others. But it's obviously all the countries on the eastern rims of what is currently the EU and, uh, and NATO. So if we go deeper on that, Nick, you've been thinking a lot about these questions as well. What is the actual kind of threat? Because, you know, Russia famously spends much less on its uh, military than the European Union does. It barely spends more than, than, than France. Um, so if you add up, you know, Britain, Germany, um, uh, Italy and all the other countries, you end up with, with, with much more money being spent by Europeans. Is it um, impossible for, for us to defend ourselves against a Russian military threat? Well, let me first of all um, just agree with, uh, with, with Thomas that, um, first of all, Russia is the benchmark. I mean, in... in uh, 15 or 20 years or 30 years time maybe it's it's china that we'd be thinking about and worrying about but but in the in the short to medium term um military strategic autonomy means could we defend ourselves against the russians and uh, the second point i agree with thomas is that um whether the political will to do so would be there whether europe would be able to harness the resources of all the member states to act in in solidarity is an extremely moot point 
But, uh, you know, that's a political question and it may only take a few more Helsinki summits for the um, for the political mood to uh, to shift significantly. Um, could we defend ourselves against the Russians? Well, interestingly, I um, I saw a couple of days ago there was a, a poll in Germany, a, a public opinion poll, where 56% of Germans believe they could defend themselves against Russia without the Americans. Um which is remarkable, coming on the heels of uh, um, some fairly shocking reports by the uh, from the Bundestag about the state of the German armed forces. You know, um, none of their six submarines actually able to go to sea. A shortage of um, of everything from spares to uh, keep the Eurofighters flying to. Uh, black jackets for, for the ordinary soldier. So there are vast uh, deficiencies in the capabilities, not only of the German armed forces, but of, um, uh, of many others across Europe. Um, so there would be a huge challenge, but, but let's be clear, the scale of the... Um, Thomas talked about the need to increase spending, and my response would be it's just a matter of spending the money we do spend on defence more effectively. The latest figures produced by CIPRI for spending on defence last year in 2017 show that the European 28, EU 28 between them, spent 3.9 times as much as the Russians. The Russians actually cut their defence spending in 2017 by, by an astonishing 20%. So the money is there if we had the political will to get around to spending it properly, which would require, um, you know, the prior steps of, of being very clear what our collective strategy was and what our collective um, force structures were going to be and what our collective uh, capability investments would need to be done. It would need to require a lot more specialization. You can't go on spending spending your defence resources on everybody having an air force when three quarters of them are only good for pumping out patriotic smoke on National Day flypasts. So there'd have to be, you know, a tremendous um, revolution in the way Europeans think about their collected defence resources and how they spend them. But so could we have a, a pooled patriotic flypast um, force, maybe a multinational force that could could be lent to all uh, EU member states on their national days? Well, that's that's a very excellent idea. I'd start with the RAF Red Arrows and be prepared to uh, spend, send them around Europe, rebadging them as necessary for um, repainting them for the different, different occasions. I mean, the only th major hole in all this is, um, is the nuclear. Um, because... I mean, what we're talking about, let's talk scenarios. What we're talking about is that the Russians make some excuse, the oppression of Russian-speaking minorities, access to Kaliningrad, to move into the Baltic states, all of them, chunk of them. And because of the, um, the advantages of geography and surprise they have, there's, there is nothing that Europe, or indeed NATO today, I think, could do to actually stop them on the border. You could not prevent the Russians occupying territories. The issue of what happens next and whether it's NATO today or whether it's the EU in some hypothetical future, what would be required then would be for um, the rapid response forces to move in and stop the Russians getting further and for then a, a slower time assembly of the military might of the alliance with a view to driving the Russians out. And in principle, that is something that NATO could do today and something that 
an EU could do in the future after the necessary reforms. But then at that stage, the Russians would kick in with their escalate to de-escalate strategy, which is to say, stop where you are, and we'll stop where we are, and we'll negotiate. And if not, there's the threat of going nuclear. And that is the, that is the point at which Europeans have no no response at the moment. I think we should look at the nuclear segment um, in more detail. But before we do that, let's look at this sort of conventional question. So if you have this 3.9 times Russian defence budget to spend and you were, you were uh, keen for a day, Thomas, what would you actually spend it on that's different from the status quo, apart from less um, air forces to do these national flybys? Mm. Um. I obviously agree with Nick's figures. Uh, he's spot on. I just don't necessarily share his optimism that we can ever spend as effectively and efficiently as as the idea of doing uh, deterring Russia with the current budgets assumes. As a general rule, a national defense budget is by and large wasted. What I mean by that is that if you spend spent X amount, say a million uh, a year, a hypothetical figure, of that really only, hmm, what, 10, 20%, Nick, you might know better, ends up going to the fighting forces. The rest is all people preparing uh, your lunches, uh, back office stuff, uh, logistics, uh, and so forth. What the Russians do is they do all of this job of logistics, back office once. We do that 28 times. So if you compare the two uh, pots of money, the Russian defense budgets and, and all the cumulative European defense budgets, you're comparing apples and oranges because the back office portion of the European uh, the sum total of our budgets is, is proportionally so much bigger than what the Russians spend. So to lo- that's a long way of saying that the Russians get a lot more bang for the money and always will because they don't have to support 28 defense bureaucracies uh, the way we do. And while I used to be optimistic about moving to supranational forces, uh, it, you know, it hasn't happened on better days and in this day and age with, uh, with uh, populist parties exercising ever greater influence on our national thinking, whether by directly being in a government or simply threatening the mainstream governments and changing their policies. Thus, I just don't see such supranational force emerging. So I do believe we would need a lot more. Let me pause here, file the nuclear issue away for the time being and say, well, we might need more on a conventional side. We would almost certainly need to spend a lot more on on a much bigger and better command and control system. I mean, the basic truth of of today's modern warfare is in many ways it's decided and won in the uh, command and control rooms. uh, And the fact is, whereas NATO can currently call on a quite a large command and control system build up over the decades. The EU doesn't have one. National, individual big European countries have rather large headquarters, but not cumulatively uh, as big as what the alliance does, uh, nor are they necessarily as network or nor do they necessarily exercise jointly commanding a major operation. So we would need to probably finance a, a rather large command and control network. And then there's all the other stuff. Um, um, Transportation, uh, how would you get, in case the scenario which Nick laid out, which I wholeheartedly agree with, how would you get the reinforcements in place when we haven't really done that and exercised that in decades? We have only started a few years ago uh, and, and 
biologic would we're in a phase of revealing the deficiencies rather than plugging them. So we know we need literally thousands more railway cars. We need to reinforce hundreds and thousands of bridges, tunnels, uh, railway platforms around Europe. We would probably need a lot more in terms of transport planes, ships, uh, and the aforementioned trains. That alone, uh, I, I nobody's going to put an exact figure on it, but I suspect the deficiencies are in billions with a B rather than tens or hundreds of millions. I mean, is it worth maybe thinking a little bit about how much the US is spending on these things? Because if, if we were basically thinking about how to deal with the US pulling back, um, you're, from what you're both saying, it sounds like Europeans would have to spend more than America's currently spending in order to get the same capacity because of the, the inefficiencies that we're discussing. But maybe we, that could be another way into this. Well, if I may develop the, the, this narrow question, um, by virtue and dint of history, the Americans have always been preparing for the sort of war where they need to deploy forces far away uh, on a short notice, right? Because all throughout the Cold War, the assumption was the fighting took place somewhere, frankly, in Germany. Um, and ideally, we stopped them in Germany. So the Americans have always be, been geared to shift forces across large distances at reasonably short notice. And even though after the Cold War ended, they've kept up that capacity because of the two wars in Iraq. Uh, and of course, more recently, though it was, of course, a much lesser operation, but the operation against uh, ISIS uh, in Syria. Um, we Europeans also used to have to what's called project forces, so basically move them quickly at speed from west to east during the Cold War. But after the Cold War, we haven't necessarily kept up the capability. While we contributed, of course, to, uh, to all, um, some of us to the uh, war in Iraq and, and most of us to Afghanistan and to, uh, to the uh, Syria operation. And while nationally the French and others have fought wars in Africa, the, the job of moving the majorities of your armed forces across the uh, the continent that's not a task that we've been thinking about planning for budgeting for or equipping for for the past few decades so you know it, it may be unfair that the americans by virtue of history are better prepared for this but but that's where we are um we uh, we're starting from a far worse position than than, than the u.s uh, would well i agree with a lot of that i mean the the there is a real problem about uh, problem about strategic mobility within the continent of Europe, which is uh, which is something that um, you know we've been collectively asleep at the switch over for a couple of decades now, and um, you know that's a problem for NATO today as it would be for Europeans in the future. So that would need fixing, and um, uh, as Thomas says, command and control would be a big thing. I would add to his list. I would add uh, the whole ISTAR thing. The uh, you know reconnaissance and in intelligence and the uh, satellite imagery and the ability to form a form a picture of what the Russians were doing and and how the battle was developing all this I mean there's a you could list half a dozen strategic enablers as, um, as the jargon goes of of things that um, well um, the whole business of smart munitions which uh, uh, we demonstrated in the campaign in Libya that um, um, although the Balkan Wars of the late 90s illustrated perfectly that um, 
uh, dropping dumb bombs from aircraft was um, a ineffective and b likely to be a war crime in future. Um, the Libya campaign showed that um, Europeans had done extraordinarily little about modernising their uh, air delivered ordnance inventories, and you know within a couple of days in Libya we ran out of smart munitions and had to go to the Americans for them. I would add um, air tanking. Um, we tend to think about uh, air-to-air refueling as something that's only needed to deploy to distant parts of the world, but actually um, to mount an effective air campaign, even in a, in a, even within the continental area of Europe, you need to have a lot of air tanking to prevent um, your combat aircraft having to come home to base and um, uh, a base which has probably been attacked anyway, um, and refuel every 10 minutes. To uh, So that's another. Um, well, all right, that's, that's two more um, rather than three more. I'm sure I could uh, think up a couple more in, in the longer term. So, yes, this is right. And, and uh, um, you know, it would be a highly expensive enterprise. And um, I also agree with Thomas that the 3.9 um, factor for how we outspend the Russians is, uh, is is an interesting headline, and it's got nothing to do with the efficiency with which the money is spent or the capability produced from either side. But it still, I think, gives some sense of the scale of, of the resources that um, are available to the two sides and the possibilities that would be open to Europeans if if they had the collective political will to spend those defence resources um collectively and effectively with with a focus on um you know actually providing europe with strategic autonomy rather than in simply in, in um you know preserving jobs or uh, creating creating employment so if one did want to do that if the two of you were were given the, the job of doing it how long would it take if i may jump in years um possibly longer um, just to give you a sense, I fully agree with Nick's list. I could add two more cap- enablers to that. Submarine warfare, I mean, which European Navy has been in the past two or three decades seriously thinking or rehearsing for planning and exercising proper submarine on, su- on submarine war? And the answer is virtually none. I, I cannot think of any. Um, and that's precisely the sort of scenario that would unfold in a Baltic Sea in case of any conflict with Russia. We couldn't reinforce uh, by land alone. We would need to get there by ships. The Russians wouldn't wait. They would want to sink our transport ships. We would need to fight a submarine on submarine war uh, with having not done so or thought about it or prepared for it for decades. Another strategic enabler, what's called in the uh, defense jargon, um, suppression of enemy air defense. That simply means um, the ability to get anywhere near the uh, center of fighting via the uh, the enemy air defense. Um, for that, you need special kind of ammunition, special kind of pilot skills um, to take out the enemy radars and the enemy's missile installations, the ground-based uh, missile installations, so that you can literally free the sky above the battle space for operations for your own aircraft without 90% of them being shot down by enemy missiles. Those are, again, skills and equipment that we haven't been really investing into in decades. So because of all of it, uh, the complexity of it, the fact that these are all expensive, costly, uh, sophisticated systems, uh, I 
I wouldn't want to put an exact sort of figure in terms of number of years, but I simply ordering them, equipping them, and, and training that sort of operations, and training those sort of operations in proper scale, meaning not one Air Force at a time, but a meaningful number that would actually be consequential in case of a conflict of Russia with Russia, meaningful number of armed forces coming together to exercise all of this. But that's, that, that's what you're talking years. Okay. And in terms of the, the cost, because the, the other interesting thing that we hear a lot about is how the Americans are investing more money in the defense of Europe at the moment. Thomas, you've probably got the numbers uh, to hand, about $5 billion. Is that right, an extra $5 billion? It's It's actually the more the uh, amount of money the United States spends on European defense uh, currently budgeted stands at $6.8 billion. Uh, so it's not small. And just an as, as an aside, when we talk about the U.S. checking out of Europe, possibly, and demolishing this whole range of institutions, oddly enough, they haven't quite touched NATO yet. They, they've in, they indeed, under Donald Trump, uh, in, nearly doubled the amount of spending on U.S. defenses uh, and U.S. forces in Europe. But, of course, that doesn't make our debate irrelevant because what hangs over all of these new U.S. investments in the defense of Europe is the question of whether Donald Trump himself would pull the trigger if called on to. And, and the reality is he doesn't seem to believe in alliances. He doesn't seem to believe the United States should be in the business of defending Europe. So we're right to be having this conversation on balance. But the reality is the U.S. still spends, as, as we speak, about $6.8 on the defense of Europe each year. Well, just, just to... Uh... A brief footnote before we, I mean, it's very right to list all, all the difficulties and deficiencies and um, the problems that would uh, stand in the way of achieving full strategic autonomy for for Europeans. But, I mean, well, I just wanted to make the point that, that uh, Thomas began by listing you know, 10 or so European states that would take this really rather seriously, those most closely exposed to the, the Russian threat. Um, but I don't think we mentioned Britain and France in that, um, in, in that list. And, or, you know, yes, I kind of assumed uh, Germany was, was yes, or, or Germany. Um, and certainly when it comes to submarine warfare, for example, I mean, we Brits have just um, acquired six uh, nuclear-powered astute hunter-killer submarines at um, well over one billion pounds a copy. So I kind of hope they would be, um, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think our submarine capabilities are are, um, uh, are so deficient. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not all bad and hopeless, um, uh, despite the um, uh, despite the very severe challenges that that, uh, that we have listed already. Okay, so um, to move on to the nuclear question, which I think is the, 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 the scariest thing to talk about amongst Europeans, um, who wants to lay out the kind of challenge there? Because there have been discussions over the years about France, for example, at one point offered um, or to start a conversation about Europeanizing its nuclear deterrent um, I mean, you know, Britain obviously is leaving the European Union, but not leaving Europe, as we're told by the government. Um, why do we need an American nuclear deterrent if we have two nuclear powers in Europe? If I can jump on this, because I can simply agree with what Nick has laid out earlier. The way the war would, with Russia would play out is exactly as sketched. It would begin with, um, with a small-scale conventional skirmish 
but very quickly on in the operations, the Russian doctrine calls for a use of tactical nuclear weapons to discourage us from acting by simply demonstrating we take this so seriously and we're willing to go to such extreme lengths, including the use of nuclear weapons with which you squishy Europeans are so uncomfortable you would never you, you know respond in kind uh, therefore there makes it makes no point for you to escalate we're willing to do you one better um, and and therefore you should cease and desist that would be the one the way the Russians would want to play this the only way to push back against it is by demonstrating both the will and the capability on our side to use nuclear weapons in exchange um, so that quickly brings you in case of Europe obviously to Britain and France. So let me make a quick footnote. When I listed the 10 countries earlier, they would be most concerned about Russia. Um, I, my point was, these are the countries that don't have a luxury of not worrying about it for existential reasons. Uh, but of course, their ability to have their existence assured in the absence of the Americans rests on others acting. And this means primarily Britain, France, and Germany. Uh, so I agree fully with you, Mark, there. Those three would need to lead any sort of a European response. Incidentally, I don't see the room here, and we may disagree among the three here. I don't see the room here for an EU action. Frankly, Britain will be indispensable to any uh, fight of this sort, and it will not be in the EU soon. And nor do I believe France would delegate something as serious as uh, uh, a full-on conventional and nuclear war with Russia to uh, to the EU. I think they would want to keep this to an intergovernmental basis. So any European response will probably be mounted on the back of an intergovernmental agreement with France and Germany and Britain at its core, and hopefully, crucially, German fully uh, part of it. Now, quickly to the nuclear weapons. The whole assumption behind a European response is that London and Paris are willing to use nuclear weapons and therefore risk a Russian nuclear counterattack on themselves on behalf of, say, Ljubljana or Tallinn. Or, and that's obviously the, the big $64,000 question to which no one has an answer now. Britain is closer to that philosophy. Britain has always believed in what's called, in a jargon, extended deterrence. So it has always said, in, as a matter of policy, that it is willing to use nuclear weapons on behalf of not just its own national security, but also on its allies. And it has also exercised that in the context of NATO exercises. France has been much more vague. Historically, France has said as far back as 1970s that, of course, Europe benefits from the French force de frappe, and therefore um, the, it seemed to be hinting at using uh, nuclear weapons on behalf of other European countries, but he has never spelled out under what conditions, which countries, nor does it take part in, in NATO exercising, uh, therefore, NATO nuclear exercising. And therefore, um, there's a lot more uncertainty over what France would do in such scenario. Do you agree with that, Nick? Um, yes, I do, in the in terms of the characterization of, of um, what's the... Brits and the French have respectively thought and said about the purpose of their nuclear weapons, their nuclear armories. Um, I think that for extended deterrence to work, and, and remember, we are talking about deterrence here. It's interesting to, to go through these scenarios and say, you know, what happens if the Russians do this and that and then let off a nuclear bomb um, to to uh, to overawe the Europeans, and the Europeans have to have the capacity to um, to show that they're not overawed and chuck one back. Um, this is actually, of course, um, 
a failure of deterrence if you ever arrived at this position. What you're aiming for is a situation where all these calculations are run through in the Kremlin before they ever begin to make those first um, uh, low-level conventional aggressive moves against the Baltic states. So um, it is deterrence, keeping the other guy in place that we're talking about. Um, for, for this deterrence to work, um, it is vital that the potential aggressor, the Russians in this case, needs to believe that, um, that uh, the nuclear threats would be carried through. Um, and the problem, of course, with America at the moment is that the Russians would need to believe, as we used to say in the Cold War, that the American president might be ready to um, put Chicago at risk in order to defend Berlin. Um, and if you express it that way, to suggest that um, President Trump would be willing to put Chicago at risk in order to f defend Berlin, it just sounds absurd. I mean, no one should believe that, frankly. Um, would a, a, a British and French deterrent be any more credible? Well, there are two parties to this. They would be they would have to make a plausible offer of extended deterrence to their European partners. Um, and they're not in a position to do that yet. The uh, Anglo-French strategic uh, nuclear cooperation has not arrived at that level of intimacy at this point. Um, and secondly, the other members, the, uh, the people over whom you're trying to extend deterrence, um, other Europeans, would have to be prepared to accept this. And that itself is quite a big political pill to swallow. I mean, would the Germans really feel comfortable um, acknowledging that their security ultimately depended upon Paris and London? I think there'd be a, uh, a very natural sort of reaction of, um, who do those guys think they are? Um, nonetheless, it's a situation which, if the skies dark and further, we, we could arrive at. Um, and to make the, this plausible, you'd have to have the the the, um, the sense of Paris and London ready to do this and acting in tandem, um, and you'd have to have um, a sense that other members of Europe were sufficiently clutched in to what was planned, maybe subsidising it, um, maybe finding other ways of, of nuclear burden sharing, being involved in the planning, the nuclear planning, um, in such a way as to, to make the, uh, to replicate, in fact, the, the sort of conditions that made US nuclear deterrence plausible during the long years of the Cold War. And we're quite a long way from all that, but um, I certainly think that it can be worked on. Two conditions, really. One, a thickening up of the um, London-Paris dialogue on nuclear cooperation and coordination of nuclear doctrine, and a move forward in their joint declaratory policy to make it plainer and plainer that they are prepared to think about um, fellow Europeans as in some sense. So, to give a sense that they, they accept that they hold their nuclear weapons in trust for Europe, not just as national assets. And then the other part of this needs to be a return of serious nuclear um, debate and discussion in Europe, because at the moment, you know, we've, um, uh, for the last 20 years, no one has talked seriously about these issues, and um, nobody wants to talk seriously about these issues, and they've got to be brought back into the, the mainstream of, of strategic discourse. Okay, and um, ha is that, but that sounds like it's a kind of long-term project as well. Are there any financial uh, elements to this as well? Would it, I mean, would it be helpful if 
For example, the Germans offered to put some money into the French nuclear program. Would that might that accelerate things? Or what are the other things that, that other countries could do if they were worried about it and wanted to move forward? Well, it obviously would. And what would the Germans be getting in exchange? They'd be they'd be getting a liability you know, for 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 uh, being sucked into nuclear conflicts in other European countries over which they had little control. Well, you know the, this. This is not, I mean, this idea has surfaced from time to time over the last 50 years. When the Germans signed up to the um, non-proliferation treaty and said there'll never be a German bomb, they put it in a footnote saying, um, but we exclude the possibility. I mean, we accept, (coughs) excuse me, Um, they put in a, a rider about the conceivable development of a of an EU deterrent in the future. Now, like Thomas, I don't think the EU is going to be running nuclear or even conventional wars in in Europe in the future. But um, Germany has been prepared to to contemplate at some some occasions in the past the idea of a Euro deterrent. And uh, again, as the skies darken, if they darken, this, this could come back, I think. Just to add to that, as a way of agreeing fully with Nick, the debate in Germany is back on. There have been articles in the last few weeks and months about the need for European deterrence, obviously inspired by Trump's own um, wobbly commitment to NATO. Uh, And as as for how others would react, uh, well, the Polish de facto leader Kaczynski has already called for European nuclear deterrent. So those countries that, that have long worried about Russia and have recently begun worried about U.S. interest in their defense have already thought it through and seem to have decided that they would they will take a European nuclear deterrent over no nuclear deterrent if that's what happens uh, after the United States checks out. Well, that's been it's been a fascinating discussion. I think we sketched out the the territory very well. So maybe I can go back to you each one last time. And and if you were kind of um, trying to think through how we could close the gap between a general sense of anxiety that we might not be able to rely on the US as we were able to in the past uh, and uh, an unwillingness to uh, a a historic unwillingness to spend much more money on these issues or to have defence budgets that do more than support um, uh, jobs uh, in in, uh, at a sort of national uh, level Um, what kinds of things would you recommend that European leaders could do now to create more of a sense of security amongst the, the countries that are most threatened um, and also to uh, step up the kind of deterrent value uh, vis-a-vis Russia? If you had to come up with sort of three or four things that could be done immediately, what would they be? Well, um, a lot more exercising would be good. Um, which has which has value in um, um, in its uh, deterrent role. Um, it has value in increasing the familiarity and interoperability of different nations' armed forces. And if it's done properly and honestly, it has value in exposing um, all the various deficiencies and gaps in um, people's uh, people's capabilities. I mean, if Thomas is worried about, you know, the submarine situation in the Baltic, then um, perhaps we should have a, um, 
a big submarine exercise alliance, um, submarine exercise in the Baltic. The other thing I'd like to see really would be um, the setting up of a, of a small commission to um, examine just this issue. It would be disguised, obviously, as what is needed in order to relieve the burden on the US and strengthen the European pillar of NATO. And you'd put some former head of state in charge of it and you'd support him with uh, two or three ex-chiefs uh, of defence staff and um, a couple of uh, military thinkers, and uh, you'd give them 18 months to come up with a very broad brush plan of what would need doing to make the European wing of NATO much more self-reliant um, and much less likely to have to call on um, American assistance in the case of um, some uh, unspecified confrontation with Redland. Okay. What about you, Thomas? What's your plan? So my first step in my plan is to fully agree with Nick's plan. I, I like it. On the exercises, let me add, they, might, they must also be of proper scale. Uh, it's not good enough for us to do 28 small exercises. That teaches us nothing. We need to hold large exercises that, that realistically simulate what we would be up against in case of a conflict with Russia. Ad adding to that two things. Uh, one, honestly, I'd like to see uh, Europeans taking on one of the another European country, and more specifically France, taking on one of the uh, uh, responsibilities for uh, leading a pre-positioned force in the Baltic. As, it, as at present, of the four brigades for, deployed forward in the uh, Baltic and Poland, only two are European, uh, German and British-led. The others are American and Canadian. I want the Americans to stay involved as long as the United States. Uh, doesn't check out. I think it's important to have them involved. But frankly, the th third brigade, the other remaining brigade, should be uh, uh, should be French, uh, as if only as a, as a way of getting Paris to start thinking more seriously and more comprehensively about its role and activities in case of a war in the Baltic. And last to add on a list, you know, NATO has this long list of capability priorities. So does the EU. Uh, Nick Whitney used to write one in his previous capacity at EDA. Um, there is a lot of expensive things on the top of the list that are not being currently financed or being bought. Things like anti-submarine warfare, where despite the uh, UK recent purchase that Nick has mentioned, we still don't do well. What I would like to see is European groups of European countries coming together, taking on those deficiencies and saying, OK, we are going to now start taking this business of, say, anti-submarine warfare or suppression of enemy air defense seriously. These five countries are going to put these specific five billion, whatever it is, into the project and within four years we'll have this particular capability. That would be reassuring, hugely reassuring than any policies or declarations. Okay, so that was uh, very good. We've ended in quite a concrete, a concrete action plan. It's been fascinating talking to you and if people are interested in going deeper, this is going to be a big theme for ECFR over the months ahead. We are going to have a resources page on our website www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts if you have any comments on our discussions um, do feel free to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu and we are still also soliciting contributions to the bookshelf segment from our listeners so do feel free to send me one of them as well but in the meantime with thanks from Thomas Valasek Nick Whitney and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye.
The researcher of UCFL's podcast is Jonathan Harkenbosch and our editor is Katerina Bertel-Atzinado. Mm-hmm.